Before I jump into preaching today, I want to give you an update of on March 26th on Sunday. We paused 1 Corinthians, our long march through this letter, and we preached a sermon from Psalm 78.4. We talked about the next generation, the th- being a third chair church and investing Psalm 78.4. Tell the next generation, tell the children, and that's the church we want to be. And even though we're entering a summer slump, I'm asking you guys not to forget your church and your in attendance and your giving and uh, we're looking forward to the fall. I want to show you a quick, quick, quick video of some footage I took yesterday or Friday with my iPhone. There is rubble upstairs. It's four feet high in some places. And we've already begun demo. Our contractor got pretty anxious. And so we let him in the, in the, up on the third floor. So he's already demoing walls. And we're excited about new space, nine new rooms for children, a place for special needs ministry. It complements all three floors. It's the North Wing. And we hope you will prayerfully consider giving uh, if you haven't become a giver where you would do that or consider giving a sacrificial gift if we can get this thing knocked out this summer we can be moving uh for the fall and you know there's a fine line between faith and stupidity and we are walking it right now uh but we started something that we don't have the resources to finish but uh we feel it wise to get out in front of this thing because if god provides uh through you through some of us uh we hope um, that uh, we can be ready and uh, soon for our fall to welcome these families and all. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I want to get you to turn there. It's going to be a hard word. Chris already stole my thunder. I th- threw something up on an Instagram story uh, yesterday to warn you about, about today. We are going to be uh, talking about, uh, from 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to touch on gender and the relationship of men and women in the church and in society. And it's, um, it's edgy, it's tense, it's volatile. It was in the first century and it is today. There's just new things that are uh, surrounding us. I want to challenge you in a few areas. I want to ask you, uh, number one, to hear me out, not to storm out, number two, and then number three, no tomatoes, okay? I was researching this week, just thinking about, uh, that's actually, it's happened in the history of the world. There was customs in different cultures where they would throw tomatoes. Thank goodness it wasn't hard apples, but it was ripe tomatoes. They would, an apple could hurt somebody. That could do physical damage. But tomatoes were thrown at bad actors and political speeches that weren't connecting with their audience or they were controversial. People would throw tomatoes, ripe, juicy tomatoes. Wouldn't cause bodily harm, but it would hurt pride and laundry. Uh, but just no tomato throwing today. Don't, uh, so hear me out. Don't storm out and no tomatoes. First Corinthians chapter 11. Um, we just got to do it. So let's read it. I'm a, I've got my scripture open. Uh, verse 2 and f- through the end. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. You ever give someone a compliment when you're about to uh, lay down the law? That's what Paul's doing here. Verse 3. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her head be covered. A man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So too woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. Verse 13, judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? 
But what if a woman has long hair? Is it her glory? For her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. If you're a first-time visitor to our church, I just want to say I hope you enjoy your last visit uh, to Fondren Church and uh, take advantage of our complimentary coffee uh, behind me in the commons. Uh, I probably lost half of you at verse 3 and the other half at verse 9. And anybody left is just a chauvinistic pig, I guess, in the room uh, this morning with us. But hey, when you come to a hard passage, by the way, we do this, what we do relationally with each other. If we're good to each other, we need to do theologically with God's word. Relationally, if you have someone that says something that's hard or out of character or it's difficult to swallow, what do you do with that hard saying? In that moment, you're, you do better to interpret what they've said that's difficult with the other nat- with who they are, with their character, with the other things that they've said, with the deposits, that they, because this seems like a withdrawal. This text seems like a massive withdrawal. And so what we need to do is understand that this problem passage, uh, with all of its cultural trappings, we'll talk about that in a minute, but we need to interpret it with what the rest of Scripture teaches, which is affirms men and women as equals. It just may not seem like it when we first read this. So it's important. I preach this a lot. When you come to a difficult passage, you need to consider history and background and culture and context and language. And that last one, you kind of have to get at seminary. But we'll, we'll share with you a bit of that. But Paul is telling a story. That's what the first thing I would say to you to understand about history and the background is Paul is telling a story. And he's telling the original story. I don't know if anybody picked up on this, but do you hear a little bit of the creation story and what Paul is saying here? So I want to take you back to the left, to the left, to the very back left of your Bibles, to Genesis 1, 26, where it says that the Lord God said, let us make man in our image. The word there is, you've probably heard it before, it's imago Dei, and that means in the image of God. Everyone is created in the image of God. Uh, as we preach hard truths in 1 Corinthians, by the way, we're going to get to love and spiritual gifts and resurrection. I can't wait, but we're here where we are now. But I hope that you uh, don't just um, storm, you know, that you don't storm out, but you don't just hear me out, but that you will lean in today and learn something about what God is saying. In Genesis 1, 26, God, let us make man in our image, imago Deo. Two things about that. First of all, God said, that's really important. God said, you have a lot of voices that you're listening to. I've got a lot of voices. Ask my wife. She's like, Robert, you got a lot of voices. But we all have a lot of voices. And today, everybody's got a microphone. Everybody's got a megaphone. And I want you to make sure that at church today, even if you never come back, that you'll hear me say, take it or leave it, that the most important voice you can hear is God's voice. What does God say? Not does what does culture say, because that's changing as we see in this text. Boy, has it changed. By the way, who am I to stand up and talk about hair anyway? But uh, let us, Paul's telling a story. He's telling the story of Genesis. He's telling the story of creation. He's telling of God who said and a God who made. Hear me, hear me real quick. You're made of God. And here's what Imago Dei uh, means. If this is a hard truth to swallow about sex and gender, listen, everybody's made in the image of God. Everybody you go out and meet today is made in the image of God. And I'll say it, no matter their race or religion or sexual orientation or their gender or whatever their battle is, everybody is made in the image of God. And that's a beautiful thing. What does that mean exactly? Because we hear that a lot from Genesis 1:26. It means this, that God made you and he, he created uh, he stamped you with a bit of his glory and you are to mimic and mirror and reflect and image God to the world. You have a responsibility. It's not just God made me 
and I sit on my hands. No, God made you. You to mimic, image, reflect, and mirror the glory of God in your life because he made you. God said and God made. Now in verse 27, uh, it says this, that he made them male and female. And so we hold these two tensions to be true. And it's throughout this book, even though 1 Corinthians challenges us in this regard, we hold male and female as equal, but also as different. And it's a tension that we hold. I hold it because scripture teaches it. We see it personified. I do in my own marriage. This is the way that we choose to live. Now we mess up often, but uh, we choose to live this way and it brings life. It brings flourishing to us. And we believe that because it's true as well. God, God said it. God made us and we need to look to him to see how he's made us. So he's made us in his image, male and female. Now, you know this, don't you? But I'm going to say it. Culture works against this. Culture works hard. And today it's working overtime to blur the lines and to blend the roles. But God has something, and I want you to be open because I know culture is yelling at you. And listen, we all bring our biases and we bring baggage to this text today. Man, we all do. I do, you do. It's just true. But here's what God says. Let us make them in our image, imago Deo. God made you. You're not a product of random chance or some coincidence. You're made by God. You have a creator, and you ought to listen to him to what he says. And he made us male and female. Then it says, God formed the man out of the dust. This is Genesis 2, 7. God formed the man out of the dust of the ground. I love this phrase. He breathed life into his nostrils. Um, I got in trouble one time from a teacher by saying nostrils. And uh, I'm like, Genesis 2, 7. Anyway, but God breathed life. And so uh, then it says this. What scripture does, it says man came into being. And I love that. Ex nihilo, something out of nothing. God brings man. He created man first. And then it, he puts him to sleep. It says in verse 20, God put man to sleep. When Fonder Church got started, one of my best friends, he was a Fonder Church member at the time, and he was an anesthesiologist. And he used to say, you know, I'm an anesthesiologist, you're a preacher, we both put people to sleep. Uh, he's no longer here, he didn't like my preaching. Anyway, but uh, we, God puts man to sleep and he does a little bit of surgery. Now, I said this when we preached chapter 6. Uh, we get caught up in uh, history, poetry, science, and we argue. It's the stuff of, of great debates. Um, and I think we get tripped up over the wrong thing because when God intends this to be science, it's science, it's, it's infallible because God said it and it's true and science would bear that out. But there's poetry and the poetry and the imagery and the teaching behind that is, is so beautiful and it's so needed in our day. And so God creates man, he creates woman and he puts man to sleep and he says, okay, here's this woman out of your rib. And we said this in verse six and we need this for chapter 11, but uh, woman is his equal. The whole thing about the side, you get, we get caught up in the rib part. But the, the thing that God wants us to know from this story is that woman is his equal. He takes her from his side. And then we see the beauty of flesh of flesh, bone of bone. For this reason, Genesis 2.24, you heard this at a wedding. Have you heard it at your wedding? For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and shall cleave to his wife. And they will, <clears throat> they will become one flesh. And it says they were naked and unashamed. Beautiful, beautiful thing. I taught this weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 6, but there's a part in Genesis where Adam says, at when he sees it at Eve, he says, at last. And I hope everybody, this is my hope for you, that everybody has some at last moments. Maybe you're single. Maybe you have the gift of singleness. You don't have to have a mate, 
uh, to, to make it, but you do need companionship. And I hope that everybody finds a at last moment, more than one in life where you're like, this is God. God provided for me and I see it. And that's what happens in the story. So it's good and it's beautiful, but don't mistake it. Listen to me. Adam was clearly out front. Adam was created first. Eve, she was clearly his equal, his partner, and as some English translations say, his helpmate. Let's go with the word helper because we use that a little more often. That would seem derogatory. If you and I are together and we walk into a social setting and uh, I say, hey, you know, this is my helper, I probably, you probably feel like I've petted you on the head, on the top of the head a little bit. I've kind of put you down some because you're my helper. I'm important, but you're not as important as me. And in the English language, it seems derogatory. Can we just say that? If you say that uh, the woman is the man's helper, it seems derogatory, but not so in the original Hebrew language. In fact, this is the quickest way to say this, but in the Psalms, uh, many times over the psalmist writes and says that the Lord is my helper. I look to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. So we know now that's ironclad evidence that this word is not meant by God. You can interpret it any way you want to, but it's not meant by God to be derogatory at all. But Adam comes first. He's created to lead and to love and to be out front. And Eve is created to be a suitable helpmate, to be a partner, to be equal, but to have some different roles in life. This is, this is what God said. I know we live in a culture. Corinth was in a culture, by the way. You hear me say this a lot. It was um, a patriarchal culture. But you get to Corinth, man, and women were leading the number one goddess among Zeus and Apollos was Aphrodite. She was the number one deity. You know why she was ranked number one? She was the goddess of sex. And Corinth was full of it. And so women were taken... Um, charge in many ways in the temple and everything in Corinth and so Paul you know the gospel writers Matthew Mark and Luke and John go out of their way to make sure we see that Jesus is advancing the rights of women over and over from the first sermon at the tomb of the resurrection to the longest conversation recorded in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well over and over again the women in leadership in the New Testament so we see that but in this culture Paul's writing and it's a, it's a liberal culture. It's a progressive culture. I don't currently mean that in a pejorative way. I'm just telling you the history culture background of what's happening. So Paul writes this. And then look, let's go back to Genesis 3. Because this story in 1 Corinthians 11 is based on another story. And you see it. Um, you see traces of it. And so in Genesis chapter 3, remember 1 and 2 is goodness. It's the, it's the order that God created. But in Genesis chapter 3, it says that the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals God created. I'll never forget 2013 when our church was in Dueling Hall and I was preaching mid-sermon and a snake slithered in from the back of the Dueling Auditorium or the cafeteria, the restaurant area and slithered in and people were jumping up on chairs and grown men were squealing like little children. People were freaked out. I remember thinking, what did that serpent say? What did it say? And uh, it didn't have to say anything. No one listened to the sermon the rest of that morning in that service anyway. I think we had a comeback in the 11 o'clock. But the serpent is the wildest of God's animals. And the serpent in this story goes up to Eve and says this. And you and I are beguiled with the same voice in our head today. Can I just say it? The serpent said to Eve... Did God really say? And when you're tempted and you're on the precipice, when you're on the threshold of a decision and you're about to compromise, you're about to cut a corner, you're about to do something foolish that's not going to give you life. It may give you a moment of pleasure. 
And that voice will say to you, did God really say this? And we know from this famous story that Eve, uh, when the serpent asked her, you know, did God really say don't eat from this tree? We know that she looked at the tree and she saw it to be, Scripture tells us in Genesis 3, good to eat, uh, delightful uh, to look at, desirable for obtaining wisdom. And she took some of the fruit and she ate it and she gave it to her husband. And Adam partakes, we all know this. So my question is this, who sinned first, Adam or Eve? Well, the text says Eve, but you can argue both. And here's why you could argue Adam, because Adam sat quietly. He was passive. He was timid. He didn't take responsibility. He didn't shoulder uh, any of the, of the load there. He was in the background. And we'll get here in a little bit later, but I want to interject it now. It's the great sin of man man like men it's our great sin when I'm doing marriage counseling I can tell you from experience the experts write it in the books the number one problem women complain about the number one problem women have in marriage is a man is too passive that's why I've appreciated the words of pastor Robert Lewis who years ago wrote this he said for for you to be a man you need to reject passivity, accept responsibility, and stand courageously. And so many of our problems, domestic and otherwise, are complicated and brought about predicated because men won't stand in the gap. Men won't say, hey, I'll be here and I'll stand up. So who sinned first? You could argue Eve. You could, go, you could argue Adam. But notice what God does. It says this, that they, they heard the voice of God in Genesis 3, 9. They heard the voice of God but they hid among the trees in the garden. Funny little thing, when I was a little boy and I first heard this story, I read it, I remember going, that's dumb, hiding from God. I mean, that's really dumb. Like they're crouching down and like he made the trees, he made the garden, he spoke, he's in your vicinity. You can't hide from God, but don't we? And they did. They hid from God and God calls out And he says this, I was about to say God called out to them, but you know what he did? He called out to him. And it's not a small thing. I know we can debate this, but it's not a small thing to me. Again, you take it or leave it, but it's a massive part of my theology and my practice as a pastor. And I'm going to answer to God one day, and I want you to know this is a big thing. God said, hey, where are you? He asked the man, where are you? Who needed to take responsibility for this? Adam, read Romans chapter 5. It'll back that up. So God lays the responsibility on the man, and that's a significant part of this. Also a significant part of our social ills, transcending every culture. So the curse comes. Genesis 1 and 2, perfect, as God intended. Genesis 3, man chose to doubt God's voice and do things his own way and go against the created order. And so the curse comes, and the curse to the woman, you all know it. Y'all can say amen. It says, I will intensify your birthing pains. You will have pain at birth. Anybody have all natural baby? Any of you ladies have it all natural? Um, Susan um, got the epidural in the name of Jesus three times. She's tough in other ways. Can I just say that? She's tough in other ways. But you'll you'll, look, the curse, uh, probably need to say it, don't need to say it, but the curse is not childbirth. The curse is the pain of childbirth. 
And so the curse comes and we see it. I will intensify. And then this phrase that's been um, bantered about, your desire will be for your husband. That doesn't sound like a curse, right, fellas? That sounds like good stuff. Your desire will be for your husband. Bring it on. Want me. Your desire will be for your husband. I look at some newlyweds. Um, yeah, come on now. That's not a curse. That's a blessing. If, if you're married to someone and she, uh, you know, you're her desire, that sounds like it's really good. But here's the thing. In the languages, remember history, culture, context, background, language. In the language, desire in the Hebrew here is an ugly word. It's an angry word. It's a violent word. It's a bloody word. And it's the same word that will come up in the next chapter in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 7 when Cain and Abel are doing their thing, the first murder in the history of mankind. And it says sin, Genesis 4, 7, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. The same violent, angry, harsh word that's used in Genesis 3, 17 is used in Genesis 4, 7. And this means what? This means that what entered the world is fractured relationships and that we would be living out and we'd live it in our day. We would be living out power and control dynamics. We would be living out uh, gender wars and we would have turf battles and we would jockey for position and we would try to one-up each other. And that's one of the great biases that we all bring into this text. Because we don't want to be controlled. We're autonomous people. We don't want one to be over the other. So men, we can go in one of two directions in this broken world. We can go the way of Adam and we can sit passively. We can be quiet and we can be timid. And listen, let me just say, there's way too much at stake for that. And I'm not going to let this be macho bravado, chauvinistic type of stuff. You know, we're not going to turn this into a promise keepers rally. But I just want to say, man, the world is starving for us to lead. Starving for us to lead. We can go the way of Adam, passive, quiet, and timid, where we don't shoulder the responsibility, or we can go the way of anger and hostility. The pendulum swings, and we see it in our world, and I'm so sorry that we do. It's not all my fault, but listen, I just want to apologize for those who do bring extra baggage because you've been, you've incurred the wrath of a man who feels like he's had to control something and power over you, a husband, a father, an ex-lover, a boyfriend, uh, a parent, or a teacher, or coach, or whatever it is, but men can go one of these two directions and they're both can, they're dangerous in their own way society men and women the we can be on opposite camps there are two dangerous sides to this you know both of them feminism is one where women say the way to live in this world is not is to be independent of men to uh, essentially uh, hate men and not to need them at all the other side of feminism is chauvinism it's where a man powers up he tries to control he he uses verses like the ones we're reading today and he says oh there's an org chart and there's god and there's man and there's woman and i will power up over you and that's not what that's not the heartbeat of this teaching at all so i if you want to know as if i'm your pastor or you're just visiting today again i know you won't come back but um, i'm a complementarian and that means i'm right in the middle that means we reject the dangerous, negative fringes of human experience and the results of the fall and the power dynamics and all of this. And we say there's a complementarian view that God has. And I know Christians disagree. Scholars smarter than me are egalitarian, where they believe that men and women are equal, like I do, but they also believe there's no difference in the roles that women and women, men and women play. And I, I say no. I say that's, you don't see that here. What you see from cover to cover is that we're equal, but we're different. You've got to hold it in tension. And I do that. And in like you to do that. 
So back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, because I've got to watch the clock. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we see Paul writing into this society where women's rights are really being advanced. And he writes this difficult text for a reason. Now, if you read 1 Corinthians 11, 3, let's do it again, because it's just fun to do. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Here's what, if you Google this verse, if you Google this verse, try it, and it's going to happen, your computer will blow up. Just right, I mean, it's just, there, there's just vitriol, there's anger, there's division, there's different interpretations. The biases and the baggage and the, you know, the people refuting it, it just comes out. Uh, this word head, it's, uh, I, I revisited it again this week because Bible scholars, those who follow Jesus and teach the Bible, believe that there's potentially two meanings and they, they go back and forth. Is it, does this word head mean authority or does it mean source? And it's important, but it will frame whether you become egalitarian or you're like me, you become complementarian. But man, they've cut down a bunch of trees arguing, writing books over one word in the New Testament, the word head. And you can read a whole bunch, a litany of progressive authors, which I want to encourage you to be careful of. You can read books from a brilliant people like the author of Jesus and John Wayne. And I just want to get out in front of this and tell you uh, that's some dangerous theology there. And it's a very, very slippery slope when you start saying, did God really say this? And every single time, John Mark Comer says this, that in his pastoral experience, a progressive, a very progressive Christian is the step right before post-Christianity. And you, you, you sense that as you read these books like this because you, got, you, know, you start revising what God really said and on and on and on. And it becomes very, very dangerous. But into this, I want to point you to Ephesians 5 because it's the same word that's used. And we're, we're here today. Why don't we just go ahead and uh, put this verse up here. R.I.P. R.G. June 4th, 2023. Uh, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. How does that taste? Nice and bitter, Right? Uh, people tell me, don't, don't preach it, don't use it at weddings. I'll sit down with a couple like, hey, man, would you just kind of hold off on that part? Always, always oblige. If they don't want it mentioned, I don't mention it. But uh, it, here's what he says. Wives, um, submit to your husbands. Now, why do we not like that? For a host of reasons, I'll, two central ones are we just don't like authority. And everybody, male and female, and remember the, genesis, the, the curse, what God said is coming is battle of the sexes. And so, man, God predicted this stuff in Genesis 3. So ugh, nobody's going to be over me. But here's what God intended there to be a created order that leads to flourishing of life. Submit wives to your husbands. By the way, it's husbands and wives. If you have a group of five or six uh, young adults, it doesn't mean that the, the women are to submit to the men. This is pertinent to marriage only. I've got three kids, two boys and a daughter. Uh, that girl has every right and every opportunity in this world that those young men have. Uh, my, my daughter could be president. There's nothing uh, stopping her in the scripture. There's no prohibition against women leading and dreaming and uh, having the highest office in the, in the land. But God has something for us in marriage and in the church that he wants us to, to, to consider. And that's what Ephesians 5 is about. Now, you know this. I think everybody does. If you keep reading that verse, and by the way, submit uh, doesn't mean something negative. It means to defer to, to join with, to come alongside, to partner in relationship with someone. That's not, uh, it can be very negative. And the reason we have baggage and biases is because we've seen it in such a negative. We've seen men power up. And so we're hurt by this. But the idea is that you would come alongside. And by the way, we have relationships of submission all around us. There's a, a friend of mine, he's a 
cop. He's a law enforcement official. He comes to our church. When he's at Fonder Church, he listens to the sermons. I hope he does. And he feels like he esteems me and honors me as his pastor in these walls. I think I, I'm kind of over him. He, he thinks that way, that that's my pastor. I'm, I'm under him. But when I drive down Lakeland too fast, he's over me, right? Now, when he pulls me over and he has, I remind him that I am his pastor. Are you with me? But in that moment, there's just a sphere, if you will, a jurisdiction is the word, but there's just, and it's, it's for order. It's not, you know, one's better than the other. And so in, in places of worship, in marriages, in homes, in cities and countries and states, that submission can be a really good thing. And you do it. You just don't know that you do it. Even you power hungry people. So we, we recall this because of we're anti-authoritarian and we also recall because there's a misunderstanding of what it means. And it can be such a thing of beauty. Remember, Paul's going to say, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Everybody knows this part's coming, but I'm going to say it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Live for her. Sacrifice for her. Defer to her. It reminds me of 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Be a student of her. I've said this during a, a previous sermon series. I'm still learning about my wife, and that is a good thing after all these years because we are not spring chickens anymore. But you can live with them in an understanding way. Be a student of your wife and serve her as a weaker vessel. Now, is that derogatory? If I put that verse up on the screen, wouldn't you go, uh, weaker vessel? And I think there's some science behind that. I preached this before. There's some brute force science behind this. But the language of the Greek, remember history, culture, context, background, language. The language of 1 Peter 3, 7 is, is complimentary. It's saying that women have this beauty and this tenderness and ought to be upheld. They ought to be deferred. We ought to, if you will, open the door and show deference to them and preference for them. And because a weaker vessel, you treat it like something that's more special. That was the connotation. We can make it negative all we want. If you're sending a box of shoes to someone across country, you just throw those shoes in that box and wrap it and put the address and send it off book rate. And you know, no, if, but if you're sending something fragile, some fine china, something of greater value, you make sure they know at the UPS or the postmaster that they are to be careful with that. And that's what he's saying in, in first Peter and Paul is saying similarly hey, hey yes the wives are to show respect for their husbands but husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and by the way first Corinthians 11 we learn both from Jesus Jesus is our model for both how to submit in our relationships and also how to lead and love in a way that matters in a way that's sacrificial there's uh, there's a reality called the theology of functional subordination I won't go too geeky on you, but the theology of sub uh, functional subordination is this. Uh, God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Is, God, is the Father greater than the Son? I hope you know the answer is no. Is the Son greater than the Holy Spirit? I hope you know the answer is no. They are equal. They are one. It's a tri-union God. No one can explain the Trinity. By the way, if you can explain God, you have a manageable deity who is not God. Can we just say that? So we can't explain that, but what we know in Jesus is this. He showed the theology of functional subordination in phrases like this. There's many I'll share with you too. Jesus said, I always do what pleases the Father. Jesus prayed, uh, not my will be done, but your will be done. Here's one that's tripping that one of you sent me a question, a, a tricky theological question this week. Um, why did Jesus uh, say no one knows when, we're, when I'm coming back except the Father? That's a good one. I don't have time to answer. Um, I, I didn't even respond to the email. I'll get to it next week. But uh, anyway, there's this where Jesus is teaching us submission as he teaches us loving and leadership and sacrificial. By the way, is there a woman among us? Don't answer because this could go wrong. But is there a woman among us? I don't know any, but is there a woman, a woman among us who wouldn't respect a man who sacrificially gives up his life for her? 
who loves and leads and listens. We were the group of church planters in, at 30A in September. Funny how God calls us to the beach for uh, different church planting retreats. But I do what they say. And uh, at one point, uh, Chip Henderson looked over at me. He was leading the whole thing. He said, hey, uh, you uh, guys that have been at it a while, tell these young planters that are about to go plant a church, tell them uh, what advice would you give them. And she can testify. And it put me on the hot seat. But I, I, I said two things. And one of them I said, listen to your wives. Listen to your wives. And I pointed my finger at them. Listen because she has beauty and discernment and understanding. And she'll keep you out of a ditch. And you need, you honor God. As she shows deference and gives you respect, she's your partner. She's your equal. She's your helpmate. Listen to what she says. And most of the time, just do what she says. Um, notice how I qualified that. All right, next verse. Got to go quick. What is it? Verse four. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors uh, his head. What did Paul mean here? Uh, we don't have time, but it, there's a debate that he is referring maybe to the Roman toga that covers part of the head or having hair too long. Isn't it funny? Chris left the room. He was here for the 930 service, but we're talking about long hair when Chris Mixon hosts the service and um, tattoos and all that that he has. But this is a cultural thing that varies, and it varies from culture to culture. Hat wearing, length of hair, certain cultures mean certain things. So for us, we look at this and go, well, what did it mean for them? It probably doesn't mean what it means for us. You get that, right? But what it meant here, I'm going to tell you, because I'm going to preach the whole counsel of God, and this will be a hard pill to swallow. In that day, only men with head coverings were either pagan priests or homosexuals. And Paul is writing to the church and saying, a man ought to be a man. And you are looking too much like Corinth and not enough like Christ. So there. 11.5, he says this. Every woman who prays or prophesies, by the way, affirming women in leadership. You, you probably didn't read that because all the other baggage that seems to be in this passage. But women are to lead. Women are to speak. I know there's that passage in 1 Timothy 2. We'll eventually preach that one day. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. Might as well throw verse 6 in it as well. There's hyperbole here, but also some cultural things. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off, or a head shaved, let her head be covered. What does this mean? Scholars debate this. It probably means she's taking off her veil or she's taking her hair down. Honestly, I think it's both. What he's saying is that a woman should embrace her femininity. That when a woman takes the veil off or lets her hair down, she's communicating not to us, but into that culture, she's communicating that she's either a prostitute or not happy in her marriage. She's not willing to follow her husband. She wants to be an independent woman. And Paul is saying this doesn't represent the picture that God has given us. It doesn't represent. Remember Jesus was asking Matthew 19, hey, tell us about marriage again. We want to redefine it. And Jesus is like, no, here's what it means. God said it, and here's what it means. And Paul is saying this. Now, there's a ton of cultural trappings here. By the way, a shave, when a woman had her hair shaved, it was a penalty for adultery. Now, we've had this. If you think, oh, that's so archaic. Well, it is. Okay, remember this is not descriptive, it's prescriptive. It's, uh, I'm sorry, it is descriptive. It's not prescriptive how you ought to live. It's descriptive of how they were living in Corinth at the time. It was a culture of honor and shame. By the way, Jesus smashes that, doesn't he? He smashes that. And, uh, but that's what we had here. And Paul is saying um, that this not ought to be in the church. We ought to look like Christ. So the next verse. 1 Corinthians eleven seven. a man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So too woman is the glory of man. I don't wear hats. I should with a head like mine. 
But you know, even this is different. I was reading the, about this, studying some other pastors, and noticed that uh, John F. Kennedy, when he was president, that he was being judged by the media for walking outside from the White House to Air Force One to wherever to his home in Kennebuck, Port Maine or whatever, and he wasn't wearing a hat. And they were commenting, like, why does he, all the presidents wear hats when they're outside? And there's stories about Bear Bryant and different football coaches and different customs. And it just, it just varies. And so here's the thing. We are free from all that. We need to study it. We need to learn it. We need to understand what it says for that time and culture. But it, we're free of that because it's different in our day. This is not insulting. It's not a thing of judgment. But let me just touch on it. If a woman has very short hair, that doesn't mean anything, does it? It, it, it doesn't. But if she has very short hair and wears baggy clothes and, you know, is looking down and has maybe some tattoos and a, a grungy look or something, uh, the parent of that young woman will probably say, hey, are you okay? Is something happening here? And here's the simple thing is this. All that to say this. Paul is writing to the church, to Christians. He's not judging the world. He's writing to the Christians and he's saying how you dress and how you act on the outside ought to reflect on who you're becoming on the inside. And that's the message. And so as Lauren and the team make their way up, uh, I'm on the clock. Look at what he says in verses 11 and 12. And this is the feel-good part of 1 Corinthians 11. If the, in the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. You see the equality there. We need to reject our autonomy and our independence. We need each other. He's clear here in verse 12. He says this, For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. Paul knew that some were having a hard time digesting this, the created order. And so he reminds us that every man since then has come from a woman. He's saying simply this, and the church needs to hear it. And I think there's a beautiful thing happening at Fondren Church. Among our leaders and those who are leading can testify to this. You won't be a leader at Fondren Church if you're not honoring your marriage. If, you, if you're married. Single people lead here as well as they should. But if you're not leading well at home, you ought not to lead in the church. Men need women and women need men, and we ought not to reject that. And so as you stand, I want to close with a couple of hard but good truths. Paul says in verse 13, judge for yourselves. And so I want to ask you today to judge for yourself. And listen, I'm going to challenge you, and I'm not looking at anybody because I don't, I don't know what all y'all are reading, but if you get a heavy dose of progressive liberal theology... Like, it's going to mess you up. And so I can recommend some things like restoring biblical manhood, restoring biblical womanhood. Read, read a wide range, but sift through a judge for yourself. And I want to just say, say this. Judge this. Judge our marriages. Because this is too often the common refrain and ought not to be in the church. Get, reach out for help. Find a model. Find a mentor. He has a career and she has a career. He has a life and she has a life. He has a bank account and she has a bank account. He has a theology and she has a theology. He has an affair and she has an affair. He has a divorce attorney and she has a divorce attorney. And I want to challenge all of you, even my progressive friends and my feminist in the room. For 55 years-ish, we've advanced the rights of women in, in good ways. But there's also this ideology of radical militant feminism. And I want to say to you, because I think the facts are in, that all social indicators are women are in a worse spot. Domestic violence, abuse, divorce, promiscuity, strip clubs, pornography, sex trafficking, single moms under the poverty level are all at record highs. 
judge for yourself. Paul says here there's something natural. You can look, you don't have to be a Christian, you can look at nature. And I want to say it. You can see a man wearing a dress and lipstick and high heels, and something in you says this doesn't seem right because it's not right. Culture changes, but theology does not. We don't greet one another with a holy kiss, and we don't worry about head coverings and hair length and stuff like that. Theology is transcultural. But I do want to say these two things in closing. In closing. In our world today, we have distorted images of femininity and masculinity and love itself. And so I want us, with 1 Corinthians as a backdrop and the greater teaching from Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3, I want to say that we should reject women being subjugated, disrespected, and oppressed. And on the other side, we need to reject a society that says all gender uh, distinctions are social constructs. God made you God made us and God made it this way and it is transcultural for our day and we do better and our world does better when we follow what God has said sermon next week will be shorter let me pray Father thanks for this morning I pray that this um, hard text will be used and uh, Lord, if it rises up, raises up some stuff in us, I pray that you would minister to us beyond this morning in our groups, in our families, via email and conversations. And I just pray that you help us to be a learning community that will take the hard with the easy and we'll learn from you. And that God, we would be more and more people who preach the word and tremble at your word and heed it and adhere to it. In Jesus, we pray. Amen. We-